Would you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1? 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just to get a little bit of a context before we head into chapter 2. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Last year, we went through this chapter in about 10 messages. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who is the apostolic representative at the church of Ephesus. And so we went through this kind of foundational chapter. And now we want to come to and begin working our way through over the coming couple of months, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'll read the first eight verses. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The cross has been the universal symbol, of course, for Christianity. But that has not always been the case. At first, in the very early church, there was a close association with Christ and the cross, which we understand, but it also could get you arrested or killed in the very early days of persecution. And the cross was still associated with the shameful execution of a common criminal. And so the church had other symbols. In fact, on the walls and ceilings of the catacombs, the underground burial places outside the city of Rome where persecuted Christians often hid, on these walls and the ceilings, we found different symbols where our faith was inscribed. Some used the symbol of the peacock. The peacock had connotations of eternal life, of immortality. Others used a dove, maybe with more reference to the Holy Spirit, and still others used the athlete's victory palm branch to think about our victory in Christ. The most common symbol used at first, however, was a simple fish. It's still known today as a Christian symbol, and it was an easy way for one Christian to identify himself to another. But really, only those within the church would know why it was significant. They would use the Greek word ichthus, fish, And it served as an acronym, and the Greek acronym could be translated Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And so ichthus stood for those wonderful truths. But in and of itself, you wouldn't look at a fish and say, I associate that with Jesus Christ. He had to have it explained to you. It was a useful acronym for the heart of our faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, 
but the fish didn't do the trick. And so, of course, the natural choice as a symbol over time became the cross. The means by which the Lord Jesus Christ would provide for salvation for all who would believe. And by the second century, Christians were painting the cross, drawing the cross, engraving the cross as a picture of their faith. As a matter of fact, in order to keep Christ ever central in every area of our lives, very early Christians adopted a practice. In fact, the North African theologian Tertullian in the early 2nd century, he observed that many Christians would trace a cross on their own foreheads. And it was at every area of life. In fact, Tertullian wrote, quote, At every step forward and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps, when we're on the couch, on our seats, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon our forehead the sign, the cross. And this is long before the establishment of the wayward and heretical Roman Catholic Church and the Catholic tradition of using the physical signing of the cross. Long before that, Christians were simply doing it spontaneously. And of course, very, very quickly, superstition set in. And now it began to be taught as early as the late second century that signing the cross was a way to get God's protection or to make something or someone holy before God. And so signing the cross became a liability to true faith. But it didn't start out that way. It didn't start out that way. The cross was precious to the early Christians. But in a way, again, it's somewhat of a surprise because of the fact that the cross already had deep symbolism. And that symbolism in the ancient world was, it was a symbol of the horror of crucifixion. It was the most ignominious and humiliating death that a person could ever endure. The Romans borrowed crucifixion, some think from the Persians, other think from the barbarian tribes at the edge of the known world, but they used it exceedingly. They reserved crucifixion for the worst criminals convicted of murder or rebellion or armed robbery. In fact, crucifixion was considered by the Romans too disgusting, too degrading for their own citizens. It was only for slaves, foreigners, or what they called non-persons. The Roman historian Cicero declared crucifixion beyond description in terms of how degrading it was. He wrote, quote, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him, what? There is no fitting word that could possibly describe so horrible a deed. But the Romans weren't the only ones horrified and disgusted by crucifixion. The Jews were as well. Which would help us understand why in the year 4 B.C., the Roman general Varus, he outraged the Jews when he crucified 2,000 of them. And in fact, during the siege of Jerusalem, just before the destruction of 70 A.D., General Titus crucified so many Jews that every road to Jerusalem on both sides was filled with the corpses of crucified Jews. But besides the horrible loss of human life, why did the Jew regard crucifixion as the ultimate degradation? The reason is very simple, and it's a theological reason. Because the Jew did not make a distinction between the tree and the cross. Deuteronomy 21-23 declares that anyone hung on a tree is under the curse of God, 
which was, by the way, one of the major reasons that Jews could not and would not receive Christ as Messiah. They couldn't believe that God's Messiah, God's Christ, the anointed one, would die under the curse of God. They couldn't grasp it. And so for anyone in the ancient world, the very idea that God sent his son to be the savior of the world and yet his life would end on the cross, this is beyond reason, this is beyond thinking. It can't possibly be. In fact, in the very earliest known drawing of the crucifixion of Christ, dated by scholars in the early 2nd century, it was found on the wall of a house or a school on the Palatine Hill of Rome. The very earliest drawing of the crucifixion is a cartoon. It's a caricature. It shows Christ on the cross, but with the head of a donkey. And next to him is a worshiper with his arm raised in worship of Christ. And the caption says, Alexa Minas worships God. In other words, worships God the donkey on the cross. To worship a crucified man was considered ridiculous, despicable, dishonorable, a waste of time. Only the most misguided and deluded and idiotic and gullible would do such a thing. So now it makes sense to us when Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty three that Christ crucified is, quote, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. In fact, listen to the whole section. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Did you catch this? The height and the breadth and the depth of the cross is that to the world it's idiocy. It's foolishness. But the reality is is that it is the power of God and the cross is the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. Because it is the power of God to save sins by the most cruel and disgusting and humiliating death possible because that's what you deserved. And that's what I deserved. And yet Christ acted as your substitute and he died that death allowing you to be forgiven of your sins and never face that humiliation of paying for them yourself. It's the power of God. It's also the cross is the wisdom of God. God has perfectly poured out all of his wrath. He's fully satisfied his justice. He's fully satisfied his righteousness, all without touching you, the truly guilty one. And because of the ignominious and shameful cross of Christ, the horrible cross, we can relish and delight in the great statement of our position before God given in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It was the wisdom of God at the cross that it defies all human nature 
Because our nature wants what? We want desperately to give God some sort of good work, to give Him some sort of self-redeeming qualities. But the cross won't let you do that because all you can do is sit back and look at it. You give nothing to God except one thing, and that is to humbly receive His gift of salvation and forgiveness, bringing absolutely nothing but your own brokenness. The cross of Christ is so counterintuitive to human nature. It's so contrary to what we want salvation to be. And so the cross of Christ can only be incorporated into a person's life supernaturally by means of the Holy Spirit. To you, the cross is precious. And why is that? Because of the work of God, by means of the Spirit of God. And this supernatural work happens by God's ordained method to change rebels into worshipers, and that is the faithful evangelistic prayers of the saints. And that's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Prayers for the lost to be saved. And over the next five sermons or so, we're going to look at evangelistic prayer in a healthy church because we love the cross of Christ, don't we? The cross is precious to us. The cross brings tears to our eyes because we know intimately the suffering that Christ Jesus endured on that that agonizing instrument. But the cross also brings us joy and delight because it's through the death of Christ that our way to God has been opened and the way to heaven has been made available. And any Christian worth his salt desires and deeply yearns for others to know the joys and the delights of knowing God, of knowing His Son, of having received this forgiveness of sins. And so the faithful Christian and the faithful church prays for the lost. We're to be beseeching God on behalf of those who have not yet come to saving faith in Christ. For the rest of our time this morning, I just want to get our minds going. And I want to get your thinking Going in this direction, we'll go word by word through the text over the next four weeks, over the next four Sundays after today. But today, I just want to stimulate your minds. I want to plow the soil of your hearts a little bit and soften that so that the seeds we plant over the next four weeks will will take root and will grow well. Today really begins a clear emphasis that we'll have in all of 2021 at Grace Bible Church, and that is the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That is, of course, taken from 1 Timothy 3.15, which reminds us that we carry the truth of God, we carry the truth of the gospel, or to put it another way, which I'm going to say, my goal is to say this 200 times this year, is that the church is essential. We're going to say that until it just flows off of our lips. One of the core features of the essential church is that it is the church which prays for the lost. Will you think about this for just a moment? No one else is praying for the lost. Just you. Just you. Just me. Only the church. And so this morning, just to kind of get our minds going, to soften the soil of your heart, I want to go through four considerations for us to think about with evangelistic prayer. Again, this is just to whet your appetite. We'll, we'll go verse by verse through these eight verses the next four Sundays. We'll go word by word, in fact. Four considerations. Here's the first one. Evangelistic prayer is good for church leaders. Evangelistic prayer is good for church leaders. We'll start with the leaders. We'll let us be the example. The Lord Jesus himself lamented the need for qualified men even before the birth of the church. 
Luke 10, verse 2, he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's never been a time in all of church history, I've read it, there's never been a time where the church generally has agreed we have plenty of qualified men. That's never been the case. No, the church around the world always needs more men, and just as, just as importantly, men who are already leading need key reminders in order to stay focused, to stay right on track, to keep their spiritual head in the game, so to speak. The New Testament is filled with examples of leaders in the church who lost their focus or just plain old went bad. Men who hurt the church more than they helped it. When Paul was in prison for the last time, he was all alone. He was all by himself. No thanks to one of his fellow ministers of the gospel named Demas. At the end of the book of Colossians, Demas is listed as one of the faithful leaders in the church. But then in 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, Paul writes Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. He left. He left his post. Paul warned the elders of the church at Ephesus, some of the same men, by the way, that Timothy is having to deal with now here in 1 Timothy. He warned them in his final talk that was recorded in Acts 20, and this is just a few years before 1 Timothy takes place. He said in Acts 20, beginning in verse 28, he's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here's his warning. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Listen to this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Did you catch that? You can hear the pointed finger. It might be you. It might be you. It might be you. But some of you will speak twisted things. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to pay attention to themselves and pay attention to the flock. But instead, some would speak twisted things. What does that mean? It means they would stray from the authority of Scripture and Scripture alone. That's the only thing twisted things can be. And why would they do this? To gain a following. In fact, it may be that two of those men, Paul warned in Acts 20, were named Hymenaeus and Alexander. You remember them. They were leaders in the church at Ephesus mentioned just before our passage. Look up with me at chapter 1, verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, when we went through this, you might recall that a more precise translation of the Greek is that they made shipwreck not of their personal faith, but they made shipwreck of the faith, meaning they taught what was contrary to Scripture. They strayed outside the bounds of the Bible. And of course, the most blatant example of a leader gone bad was Diotrephes. John writes to a commendable elder named Gaius, And John acknowledges the major problem in that church. It was another leader. Third John, verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So the New Testament gives us plenty of examples of leaders gone bad. You have Demas, who just lost interest and wandered off into the world. 
You have some elders at Ephesus, possibly including Hymenaeus and Alexander, who abandoned Scripture as the sole source of spiritual authority. And you have Diotrephes, who is enamored with the position of leadership and loved to be first. You know what would have kept them all on track? Evangelistic prayer. It would have kept them on track, the continual reminder that the church and her leaders are the ambassadors of God's gospel, that we're to be the salt and the light of Christ to a dying world. Why is evangelistic prayer so good for church leaders? I want to give you three reasons. First reason evangelistic prayer is so good for church leaders, it engenders humility. It engenders humility. Evangelistic prayer reminds church leaders that someone once prayed for their salvation, that there was a day when they were not in Christ. Evangelistic prayer reminds them that they need to be humble. What was the problem with Diotrephes? He liked the position. He just wasn't that concerned with the actual members of the church. And I can guarantee you he didn't know the members of the church. He was a detached leader who liked the corner office, so to speak. There's a second reason evangelistic prayer is good for church leaders. It encourages efficiency. It encourages efficiency. Listen, the bane and the blight and the bother of church leadership teams is when they bog down in administrative nonsense and take forever to get anything done. I've talked to more pastors than I can remember now whose souls are being sucked dry by elders meetings that go five hours and make one decision. That's a church with spiritual cancer, by the way. But evangelistic prayer, what does it do? It creates an urgency. It creates a need. It creates a desire that we've got to move. We've got things to do. There are people dying in our city this day without Christ. And so it creates that urgency. The members need to be shepherded. They need to be taught. They need to be discipled so that they can be a godly influence for Christ. Who is dying and going to hell tomorrow? Let's share Christ with them today. And so it encourages efficiency. It's the third reason that evangelistic prayer is good for church leaders. It enables teamwork. It enables teamwork. A leadership team that gets drawn into the worldly model of a corporate board of elders or board of directors, rather, it begins to smell. It smells like politics. It smells like posturing. It smells like positioning. In fact, one of our heroes of the faith, Alexander Strzok, the author of the classic biblical eldership. He doesn't like and he refuses to use the term elder board. He, in in fact, prefers the term eldership because a board votes on things and sits in an ivory tower making decisions. An eldership is doing the work of the ministry, not just sitting around making decisions for others who are doing the work of the ministry. Evangelistic prayer has a great way of enabling teamwork because when we recall that there are dying souls, somehow our own personal agendas just become less, less important. Evangelistic prayer is good for church leaders because it engenders humility, it encourages efficiency, and it enables teamwork. Let me give you a second consideration, just plowing the, the soil here with you, and you guessed it, evangelistic prayer is good for church members. We start with the leaders, but evangelistic prayer is good for church members. The very first sermon I ever preached at Grace Bible Church is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. still a precious passage to me. And if you know that passage, you remember Paul's warmth and his affection and his joy 
toward the church at Thessalonica because it was filled with new believers and they were gung-ho for the gospel work of the kingdom. And 1 Thessalonians 1 expresses Paul's joy because of these baby believers and listen to their accomplishments. They had work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. The gospel came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. They imitated Paul. They received the word in much affliction. They shared the joy of the Holy Spirit even as they suffered They shared the good news of Christ in two Roman provinces, and this is before the internet, this is before anything electronic. And in fact, their gospel efforts were going so fast that Paul said, every time I get to a new city, I hear about the Thessalonian believers. They beat me to it. That he would hear about the faith of the Thessalonians and how they were turning to God and away from idols. And by the way, these young believers were already heavenly-minded They were said in 1 Thessalonians 1 to be waiting for the Son of God to come from heaven. And what was so pure, what was so lovely, what was so delightful, what was so beautiful about this church? They were growing in the Lord and they were living it out in evangelism, proclaiming the gospel. Why is evangelistic prayer so good for church members? Let me give you three reasons. First reason. These are a little longer. It engenders breaking the mold of wicked consumerism. It engenders breaking the mold of wicked consumerism. Consumerism in the church says, the church is here primarily to tickle my fancy, to provide for spiritual needs while I passively sit back waiting for others to do that for me. And if you don't serve me well enough, I'll just wander away. Now, most assuredly, you should receive the word of God. You should be growing in your faith. But let me issue a warning I've given this warning countless times. There is a subtle numbness that Satan can bring on in your life and in the life of a church. This is why the New Testament says so many times, be on the alert, be sober-minded. We're to be sharp. And this numbness is that you slowly begin thinking more and more about your own feelings, more and more about your own felt needs, your own wishes, and you get more and more dissatisfied as others are not as focused on you as you are. I wonder if Stephen, as he was being stoned to death for the witness of the gospel, was saying, you know, my church just didn't meet my felt needs. I just feel bad that the pastor didn't call me this week. I just, yeah, as the stones are whacking him in the face, I'm sure that he was thinking how his church failed him. No, he was a man willing to die for the sake of the gospel. Just a normal church member, by the way. You know what cures that numbness? It is evangelistic prayer. It breaks the mold of wicked consumerism. Here's a second reason evangelistic prayer is so good for church members. It encourages taking your own discipleship seriously. It encourages taking your own discipleship seriously. You would never go to a gourmet restaurant and just go and sit at a table and say, I'd like to just look at all the food that's here. Oh, look, look at that going by to that table. Look at that one over there. Oh, look at that dessert. That one's on fire. That's weird. Uh, Look at this, that wonderful big steak coming Boy, that was really great to see all that. I think I'll come back next week and watch that again. And yet in the church of Jesus Christ, some will come week after week, month after month, year after year, and never eat the food. 
and never partake. If you're one who has a ho-hum attitude toward learning the word of God, toward soaking and being saturated in the preached word and in every discipleship opportunity you can get your hands on, I guarantee you, you also have a ho-hum attitude toward the lost. And let me tell you why. Praying for the lost as a church means that you're expecting to see new believers come into your life and you need to be prepared for these questions. I love getting questions from new believers. Things like, how come Jesus isn't still on the cross? Things like, how come your Bible starts in Genesis? Things like, how come you drink that juice and eat that bread? What's that about? All these questions that you should be prepared to know. Now, I know pastors use way too many sports metaphors. I think that's a weakness in preaching. But I take my cue from the Apostle Paul. He said that our faith is like running the race. He said it's like a boxing match. So who am I to contradict Paul? The church of Jesus Christ is like getting ready for a big relay race. And on the day of the race, when the coach is looking at his team and looking for the four who will run that relay, who's he going to look for? He's going to look for the ones who put in the work. He's going to look for the ones who practice the most, the ones who work the hardest, the ones who show the most dedication. Why would God entrust to you relationships with new believers when you probably won't make time for them and when you haven't prepared your own walk with the Lord to be ready to disciple one? Why would he entrust that to you? Let me put that in the positive. You saturate yourself in the word of God all while praying, Lord, give me someone to share this truth with. Give me someone that I might share what I've learned. Give me someone to invest my life in all while fully expecting that the Lord will place this precious new believer into your life at some level. Listen, one of the things I love about you, about Grace Bible Church, is that when we have a brand new believer walk in the door, you guys are like piranha. You are on him. Like, well, I want to disciple you. I want to disciple you. And they're like being pulled in all these directions. Praise God for that. Let's pray for more. Amen? There's a third reason evangelistic prayer is good for church members. It enables unity in the body of Christ. It enables unity in the body of Christ. Paul told the Thessalonians he was impressed. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 With their labor of love. And yes, this means that they labor in the gospel because they love God, but it also is accompanied with love for one another. You can't work alongside someone you don't love. That's what keeping focused on the grand design and the purposes of the church does. It, It creates unity because other smaller issues just don't matter as much. They just don't matter. And now, because of evangelistic prayer, you're preparing yourself. You're serving every single little job in the church because it contributes to the proclamation of the gospel. Everything you do here contributes to that. And now there's an expectation that you'll see new believers, whether from our own ranks, maybe from our children, or from elsewhere. Evangelistic prayer is good for you. It is wholesome. It breaks the mold of wicked consumerism. It encourages taking your own discipleship seriously and it enables unity in the body of Christ. Let me give you a third consideration. Evangelistic prayer is good theology. Evangelistic prayer is good theology. Here's a question I've heard many times and it goes something like this. If the Bible teaches that God elects and chooses all who will believe 
that they're predestined to believe, then why am I praying for the lost? Why am I praying for the lost? Well, let's let our text answer that question. Did you notice a theme emerging in these verses? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved. Verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, this is not a statement of universalism that God is going to save every human being, nor is it a statement of the lack of the sovereignty of God that he just wishes that all people could be saved, but he can't seem to make it happen. We'll get to the theological implications of those things in future messages. But for now, the one thing we should take away from this is the emphasis on all people. Why is this here? Because God has chosen the elect and he hasn't told you who they are. He hasn't told you. And so who do you pray for? All people. And you might say, well, of course we should pray for all people. Let me ask you a tough question. Would you pray for the salvation of your son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter with the same level of intensity that you have prayed for the Speaker of the House of Representatives from our own state, Nancy Pelosi? Would you pray at the same level? We've all seen that she embodies everything that's evil and duplicitous and dishonest. She's going to turn 81 years old in a couple of months. It means that in months or years at most, she'll be standing before Almighty God having to answer for having rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and for every evil, wicked, duplicitous, dishonest thing she's ever done. And if she doesn't turn to Christ, and soon she'll never, ever, ever have the chance to do that again. And so while we do understand that God is glorified in handing out wrath to the unrepentant, God has not asked you and me to be part of that. What he has asked us to be a part of is praying for the lost. We let God deal with election. We pray for all. So why do we pray if God has already chosen the saved anyway? Why do we do that? Well, very simply, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and prayer and proclamation is the means that God has chosen to connect the gospel with the elect. That's the means. That's the way he's chosen Are you saved because God chose you? Yes. Are you saved because someone prayed for you? Yes. Which one is it? Yes. Can I tell you something? Before you start trying to unravel that theological conundrum, God hasn't really asked you to do that. I've never read a satisfying answer to that puzzle. Why? Because God isn't interested in our theological reflections on that puzzle. Let me give it to you straight from the pen of the Apostle Paul. He wrote in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's God's choice. And, and he wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. In other words, pray for the lost to be saved by the means of the preached word. Evangelistic prayer. Which is it? Yes, it is God's choice of the elect who are connected to the gospel because you prayed. Because you prayed. And so evangelistic prayer is good theology. God is sovereign over salvation and you are to pray for the lost to be connected to the gospel. It is that simple. Let me give you one more consideration. Evangelistic prayer is good ecclesiology. 
Evangelistic prayer is good ecclesiology. It's good in our understanding of the church. Ecclesiology just means the study of the church of Jesus Christ. In our culture, there's a tension that exists in churches really about the size of our church. And the tension is this. Everyone knows what a small church is about. And that has its definite perks and advantages. The small church is relational. Everyone knows everyone. Structure is pretty loose. You have one pastor, maybe two. They can keep a pretty good handle on the ministry. When a a guest or a visitor walks in the door, everybody knows it. Hey, who's that? First guest we've had in eight weeks. Everybody knows it. On the other hand, everyone also knows what a truly large church is all about. And it also has definite perks and advantages. The large church has something for everyone. They have a full-time pastor just for third grade girls. They have everything. (laughs) Wonderful ministries to meet very, very specific spiritual needs. Special needs children's ministry, a well-run Sunday school children's ministry that rivals Disneyland in experience. Small groups for every conceivable need a full-time family and counseling pastor, all kinds of things. The structure is well-defined. It's complex to meet the growing needs of the church. Everyone knows what a small church is about, and everyone knows what a really large church is about. The challenge is, is when you're like us, kind of in between. Because then some of you want us to act like a small church, and some of you want us to act like a large church. And so there's a pull, there's a tension It is selfish and wrong to want a church to stay a certain way because you like it. And it's equally selfish and wrong to want to build some sort of empire just because it makes us feel good. And is it really our place to try to make that decision? Trying to say we want the church to be a certain way is a little bit like a pregnant couple arguing over whether they should have a boy or a girl. The baby's going to be what God has already determined. And certainly the baby in the womb isn't going to say to itself, well, I think I'd like red hair, green eyes, and to be 5'8". I think that's what I'll do. That's not going to happen. It's already been determined. And so instead, what do we do in the church? We obey the Great Commission by making disciples, inculcating them into the church through baptism, and then we adjust to whatever God does. But I do have a question. Why would we not want to see the church grow? The reason I ask that question is because Jesus wants to see the church grow. He's already promised. He's the one who said he would build his church. He's the one who gave us Ephesians 4, which says that we grow spiritually through the preached word of God. And once the church is equipped, verse 16 says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow, speaking of physical numerical growth, so that it builds itself up in love. That is God's will. I know there's always a shortage of churches that are simply preaching the word without succumbing to the laziness of man-centered preaching. I I know there's a shortage. There always has been. And because of this, we have enjoyed receiving many of you as already established believers, hungry for the word, and for you, we are grateful. But can I tell you, there is a joy that is unique and beautiful to see the church built up when God brings a new believer into the flock. I have a special place in my heart for those of you for whom I have been the only pastor you've ever had, for whom this church is the only church you've ever known. How special is that? Here's a perspective for you. In 2020, we were told that the church is not essential. 
There's the word essential twice. I have 198 to go. We were told that existing churches need to stop meeting. And we're still under this in California. Let me ask you a question. In the book of Acts, when new believers came to faith, where did they go? They met with the church. They met with other believers. The church that is not meeting is a direct assault on the gospel and on the expected outcome of evangelistic prayer. Why would God answer evangelistic prayers when you won't even meet as a church? Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 9.31, so the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in faith and they increased in numbers daily. Listen, it says that they added to their number, not added to their live stream. It says the church, the ecclesia, the gathering multiplied, not the number of hits on YouTube multiplied. We're thankful and grateful for the outreach of electronic media, but that is not the church. How lame is it to say to an unbeliever, I want to share the gospel of Christ with you. And if you would come to faith in Christ, you should tune in to this YouTube channel. No, you say, come with me to church. In the midst of the tremendous persecution in which believers were being imprisoned, in which the church was right in the middle of satanic resistance, the church at Philadelphia in Asia Minor was one of only two out of seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to receive nothing but commendation and encouragement from our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Revelation 3, 7, and 8. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They had a little power, a little strength. Do you know what Jesus defines as their power and their strength? The fact that they had an open door. That was their strength. They had an open door to the gospel to proclaim the gospel as an evangelistic church and Jesus made them an astounding promise. No one will ever shut your door. No one ever will because you're proclaiming the gospel. In fact, in his sermon on the church at Philadelphia, the great Charles Spurgeon of the London Metropolitan Tabernacle, he preached this with vigor in the mid-1800s. He said, cheer up and get to work. Wake up to holy energy. In the Sunday school, there will be little children that you will be the means of bringing to Christ if you will teach a class. And out at the street corners, there are folks that you will turn to the Savior if you will have but the courage to stand up and preach. Out in the villages or in the crowded city, hearts await you. I say not this of you all, but of the confirmed and faithful ones. If you feel, I can never give up the Bible. I can never forsake the truths I have learned from it. They're stamped on my heart. They're cut into the very center of my soul. Then you are the man who may safely go forth to publish the truth. There is an open door before you. 
which no man can shut. Gird up your loins and enter it. Rush to the front. Victory lies before you. God means to use you. You are a vessel fit for the master's use. And there never was a vessel fit for his use that he did not use one day or another. The hour needs its man quite as much as the man needs the hour. You want to keep your ecclesiology straight? You want to stay pointed in the right direction? You want to keep your feet grounded in the church of Jesus Christ? Evangelistic prayer will unlock that open door. Yes, the cross is a symbol of death and humiliation and degradation. Jesus Christ, naked on the cross, bleeding, suffering, crying out. We know all of that. We get that. But why is the cross also our symbol of victory and triumph and conquest? Because the cross has no one on it. The cross doesn't have you on it, paying for your own sins. And the cross doesn't have Christ on it because when he paid that full price and was laid in the grave, death had no hold on him. And he led the way to an eternal resurrected life, which we now inherit in Christ. And so the cross is very precious to us, but make no mistake, it is an empty cross. It is a cross that has done its work. And in return for his grace to us, he simply asks that we pray and we seek the Lord to bring others to the cross as well. Over the next month, we're going to do a church-wide evangelistic prayer project. It's going to comprise, be comprised of several aspects. The first one is easy and the most important. If you are the head of your home, and if your home consists of one or consists of ten, if you're the head of your home, I want to ask you to be responsible to lead your family in evangelistic prayer over the next month because you know what my prayer is? Is that when your family gets in the habit of praying for the lost, you'll never stop. So the second thing we're going to do, our small groups are going to engage in evangelistic prayer this month. If you're a small group leader, you lead in evangelistic prayer. And if you're doing one of the sermon-based groups, this, of course, you'll be studying what we've preached already. Beginning next week, the third thing we're going to do is we'll have a prayer board up outside the sanctuary. You'll notice the prayer board because it's going to say prayer on it. And this is a place for you. You'll be given a means to write the first names of people you want the rest of us to pray for and put it up on that board. And so you put those names up. And as you leave every week, get some more names to write down. And and fathers and heads of homes, you go home and you pray for those people. Wouldn't it be great if you have a son or a daughter yet to come to faith to know our whole church is praying for them? The fourth thing we're doing, quite in God's providence actually, student ministries will be talking about evangelistic prayer in their Thursday evening anchored uh, meetings over the next month or so. But the main thing I want to reemphasize is head of households, beginning this day in your home, pray for the lost, pray by name, beg God, beseech God. And if we'll do that, what do you think he'll do in our church? I think he'll bless that. I think he'll be faithful to us. The great Scottish reformer John Knox prayed, give me Scotland or I die. In the 18th century, the worldwide evangelist George Whitfield prayed, Oh Lord, give me souls or take my soul. That's the level of yearning evangelistic prayer that we need where you yearn to see the streets of heaven filled with those that you prayed for. 
One of the hallmarks of a healthy, healthy local church is that it has a corporate concern for the lost, and this concern manifests itself in faithful, fervent evangelistic prayer. So will you join me in that over the next month? Let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, which is so clear. We look forward, Lord, to digging into the meat and potatoes here of First Timothy chapter 2 over the coming month or so. And I pray that you would remind us, Lord, that while you have chosen the elect, you have asked us to pray that they hear the gospel. And that is our responsibility. That is our calling. And Lord, now as we approach the Lord's table, we ask you to fill our hearts with humility, with brokenness, that we would approach the table with confession, approach the table with a heart of contrition. Because this is the representative of the cross, the blood of Christ, and his body broken on that cross. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us during this heightened time, this greatest moment of Christian worship as we offer to you our celebration of the Lord's table. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.